Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm really happy to see that you all came out uh, this evening to meet and hear Simon Winchester. Um, I wanted to tell you that we have copies of our November-December calendar on the table in the back, and um, please pick one up if you don't get it in the mail, because then you'll know what's happening here from now through the end of the year. Uh, tomorrow night, a reminder, Chris Matthews will be here, and he'll be down in the main hall. Uh, we're, we're opening the doors at 7 o'clock, and he'll start speaking at 7.30. Um, all right, but tonight, born in England, now a naturalized U.S. citizen, critically acclaimed author Simon Winchester's fascination with America began in 1963 on a gap year, back, gap year backpacking trip across the country where he hitchhiked 38,000 miles. It's hard to believe. <laughs> he would return 10 years later as a young reporter assigned to Washington, D.C. during a turbulent time in the 70s covering the Watergate trial and the resignation of President Richard Nixon. Research into his newest book, The Men Who United the States, began during the Bush presidency and financial meltdown, and it took Mr. Winchester on another epic road trip from New Harmony, Indiana to the Grand Canyon, following the footsteps of the geologists and engineers whose stories he sought to uncover. The Men Who United the States is a deeply personal book revealing unknown aspects of the nation's past as well as the author's and reminds readers what a great nation the United States is. Simon Winchester, as you know, is the author of more than 20 books, including The Professor and the Madman and The Crack in the Edge of the World, both of which were New York Times bestsellers. Please join me in giving a Pratt welcome to Simon Winchester. Thank you very much. And it's, uh, I hope I'm not being too cocky to tell you that this new book has debuted at number 13 on the New York Times list as of yesterday. So I think that's rather good news. Well, thank you very much. Um, I just want, I should say one thing first of all. I know everyone says you must turn off your cell phones. Um, I actually. I'm not going to turn off mine because in a few moments I'm going to pay you a small piece of music. But, um, yeah, good, it's, it's queued up. I was a bit worried that I would press something and it's not. So um, I, what I thought I'd do, first of all, was to tell you a little bit about how this, this book came into being. And it does indeed go back not to 1963 but to 1962 when I first came to this country as a hitchhiker. I had a... I did take this gap year, and I had a, a girlfriend in Montreal, the kind of girlfriend one has when one is, I was 17 and she was 16, and I took a job in London working um, in a mortuary in North London, cutting up uh, bodies for, it was, I think, £11 a week and four shillings a body bonus, so the, uh, I amassed quite a lot of money quite quickly, and because people were dropping like flies in those days in the London fogs, and... Um, so I managed to get the fare to come across uh, here and went to Montreal and then um, hitchhiked across to uh, Vancouver 
and then thought, well, I've got eight months or so before I need to go up to Oxford, so um, why don't I go and have a look at the United States? And so crossed the border in Blaine in Washington, and I remember being greeted, the first sign I saw was, uh, welcome to the United States, it is illegal to hitchhike or pick up hitchhikers. <laughs> it was slightly dismaying, but I just sort of stood there looking bewildered and forlorn, and within, I should think, about 90 seconds, someone stopped in a little, as it happens in English, uh, open-top uh, sports car and picked me up and said, can I give you a ride to Seattle? And that really set in train a long series of kindnesses which just completely enraptured me with this new country that I'd heard about but obviously never been to. And, um, I mean, to give you an example, a few days later I was in the peninsula of San Francisco, San Mateo, I think it was, and I couldn't get a ride. I'd been waiting since about 11 o'clock at night until 5 or 6 in the morning, very tired, and San Mateo sheriff's office car turned up with a young policeman who said, uh, can you not get a ride? Well, let me um, at least amuse you for a little while. So come and see the police station and meet the, um, the desk sergeant. And he took my fingerprints. I was beginning to think, why don't you try on these nice shiny bracelets? But he'd, it was actually genuine. And then he took me home to his family and gave me breakfast. And, uh, and then I took a shower. And then he uh, took me in his cruiser down to a truck stop and ordered a, a trucker to give me a lift to, to Santa Barbara. So it, it couldn't have been better. And, and after that, I think the next chap that picked me up worked for NBC television and was quite well connected in the movie business. And he took me to see John Frankenheimer on the set there where they were shooting Seven Days in May. And so I got to meet Bert Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. And then the next day, I had a cup of coffee with Johnny Carson. You know, all this for a 17-year-old English kid. It was remarkable. So, all told, I did indeed do about 38,000 miles. I went to every state in the continental US. But the really remarkable thing, I think, was that um, I entered America at Blaine in Washington with 200 crisp American dollar bills. And when I left eight months later, I had 182 of them left. So the entire trip had cost me just $18 because Americans were so incredibly generous and nice. So I came back the following year thinking, well, this is a marvellous place for a cheap holiday. <laughs> and and that, that was equally wonderful and had all sorts of similar adventures, although I was going specifically climbing in the Rockies that year, so it was a, a much more targeted journey. And then I, I went on and you know, got my degree and went off and was a geologist in East, East Africa, in Uganda. And... Um, through a long and rather bizarre set of circumstances, then became a, a journalist and, and spent quite a long while in Northern Ireland. And I think largely as a reward for surviving that, they sent me off to Washington to, um, to, to cover America as the number two correspondent in Washington. And of course, as you rightly say, it was dominated by, by Watergate, but they occasionally let me go out you know, beyond the Beltway and, and see America. Sometimes a, a very good idea, but sometimes not so good. For instance, the, you may remember Nixon resigned on the, uh, the 9th of August, I think it was, 1974. I was in the White House for that. But then when President Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, which was on the 8th of September, 1974, I was not in Washington at all. I was actually in Idaho covering Evil Knievel, attempting to, <laughs> to jump over the Snake River Canyon. And I remember when I called in to the desk in, in, back in Britain, the foreign desk, 
they were already annoyed that I was not where I should have been. But then they said, you know, Evil Knievel didn't even have the grace to kill himself because if he had, of course, <laughs> would have been on the front page. But as he lived and failed, it was uh, relegated to page 13 or something. So anyway, I, um, I then went away and I went off to live in India for a while and then came back to America in the late 70s, early 80s. And I think then there was one small event that really cemented my love affair with this country. I, um, you may remember a film called Paris, Texas came out, made by Wim Wenders, a wonderful, eccentric film. And I was looking one day in the Atlas of the United States, which is one of the great legacies of the Nixon administration, in my view, the official atlas. costs a great deal of money, but it's a beautiful document. And I was looking for Paris, Texas. So I was looking at the index page that begins with P.A., and I noticed on the index columns um, that there were a great slew of cities all called Paradise. And this was at a time, the early 80s, when English magazine editors spent money like drunken sailors. And I, I rang up one of them, a sort of more gullible man, and said, I think I'd like to go and see all the towns in America called Paradise to find out why they were called Paradise in the first place and were they still Paradises. And he said, yeah, sure, off you go. So the, I went, the first one was Paradise, uh, Florida, which is near Orlando, which was a sort of retirement community, more of a gateway to Paradise, I think, than actually <laughs> a Paradise itself. And then there was Paradise, Pennsylvania, on Route 43, very near Intercourse, which, of course, excites everybody when anything happens near Intercourse, and Paradise, Arkansas, and Paradise, Montana. And they were all ruined in one way or another by the depredations of modern American life, except for one, and that was Paradise, Kansas. And that's a little wheat farming community in the northwest of Kansas, fairly near the town of Salina, very therefore near the geographical center of the contiguous 48 states. And I went there, and as usual, I went to the post office and spoke to the postmaster, a woman, but as you know, postmasters are men and women in this country. And I said, I'm an English writer and I'm doing this project. And um, she said, you absolutely must uh, come here. It's a wonderful community of about 250 people. And you must go and stay with the patriarchs of this village who are John and Mary Angel. And uh, so I stayed with the Angels of Paradise. And um, no, I'm absolutely serious about that. And Mary Angel, bless her heart, um, did have a cherry tree in the garden and she picked cherries and baked a pie. And I think one of the greatest moments, sentimental moments, I suppose, in my uh, love of my gathering love affair with America was eating a cherry pie baked by the angels in paradise. So you, you can't get better than that. So then I went away and, and my career did other things. I went off to live in China for quite a long time. But then when Hong Kong passed back into um, British uh, Chinese hands in June 1997, I had one of those um, fork-in-the-road moments, whether I should go to London, where I was from, or whether I should go to New York, where I actually thought my career might go rather more swimmingly. So um, I went to New York, and after a couple of years there, um, paying taxes, the old revolutionary mantra raised its head, no taxation without representation. I thought, well, if I'm going to pay taxes, I ought to be allowed to vote, so let's set in train the whole business of getting citizenship. So I got my green card, and then after five years with the green card, you can apply for citizenship, and that brings me to the 
2000s. And um, finally, I was called for my interview in Boston in early 2011. And uh, I actually managed that they ask you all sorts of things. You've got to write a sentence in English and you've got to count to 10 or something. And, and then they ask you 10 questions selected from a raft of about 100 to show how well you know this country. And I managed, of course, to get the first one completely wrong. Um, they said very casually, so Mr. Winchester, what's the American national anthem? And without a moment's hesitation, I just said, America the Beautiful. And there was this horrified pause from this guy. And he said, well, we all wish it were America the Beautiful. But in fact, it's that unsingable Star Spangled Banner. And I'm afraid you've now only got nine chances left to become an American. But mercifully, I aced the remaining nine and, and was sworn in in this incredibly moving ceremony on the after deck of the USS Constitution, which I gather is the oldest floating commissioned warship in the world. We, the British, have a, an older floating warship, but it's floating in cement, so uh, that's HMS Victory, where Nelson died. And um, the judge that swore me in, a woman called Marianne Bowler, has since become a, a very good friend, and I actually uh, had, had lunch with her in Boston last week. She um, does all sorts of exciting things, and at the moment she's the judge in charge of the Boston Marathon Bombers case, so um, she's quite a a well-known jurist. Anyway, so that happened, and it was at that point I thought that I'd love to have a go at writing a, a book about this country, a monumentally complicated task, of course. But um, it's a task I had actually done once before. I had written a book about America in the 1970s, which was... Um, I was seized with this now looks terribly naive idea that the essence of America could be found in the in the American Midwest. Um, is there some problem that I should know about? Is there a camera there which you mustn't sit on? I do beg your pardon. Is everything all right? Yes. Good, super. No, please don't. It's not my camera, so sit away as far as I'm concerned. Um, no, I had written a book about America before, which was um, I had this idea that uh, the essence of America, the quiddity of this country, could be found in the Midwest. And so I had taken six months' leave, and I had spent those six months driving up and down and up and down Interstate 35, which, as you may know, goes from International Falls, Minnesota, down to Laredo in Texas, and wrote a book called American Heartbeat, which was politely, not enthusiastically, but politely reviewed. Uh, but when I got the royalty statement for it in 1977, I mean, the word royalty is a complete joke because it had actually sold only 12 copies. And uh, although William Least Heat Moon wrote to me about four or five years ago to say he had bought another. So total sales, we're getting up there now. It's 13. So when I resolved after getting my citizenship in 2011 that I would write a book about America, it would be my second chance, as it were. And the guiding principle behind it in the early days was that uh, it should be in no way like the book that I had written in 1976. But what exactly could I write about? That's what I was pondering. I, I thought I could write just a sort of a, a love story, to, to tell stories of my time here and why I liked it so much and why I felt so very positive about it. But my editor thought that was you know, too sentimental and too unfocused, and I think he was absolutely right. And then I thought, um, and when I say thought, I mean to... to 
give a proposal. You have to write a 30 or 40 page document proposing the idea. So it's not just I thought and mentioned it in the pub. I thought, wrote a document and presented it to him. So he nixed the first idea. And then the second idea, I, had, I have this love affair with railway trains. And I thought um, it'd be nice to cross the United States in class three railways, which are these mum and pop sort of freight lines. And it's possible to do that in a rather sort of convoluted way from Eastport in Maine to a little town in Northern California. Um, so I advanced a very complicated plan for doing that and the editor shot that down in about half an hour and said it would be a book about railways, not, not really about America. And then I was getting sort of desperate and I came up with a really, what now looks incredibly naive idea. There's a famous series of books in Britain by a man called Anthony Sampson. Uh, called The Anatomy of Britain. And I thought I would write The Anatomy of America, but structure it very much on Gray's Anatomy, the, the medical book, so that the brains of America would be the universities and the nerves would be the telecommunications system and the skeleton would be all the steelwork and the cement and the arteries would be the interstate highways and things like that. But the editor saw through that in about five minutes and said, we certainly don't want that. So then I was really rather stumped and then I was staring one day at the name of the country, thinking, what on earth could I do? And then I was looking at this, this adjective, united. And I thought, why not explore how this extraordinary amalgam of people, this very this mongrel country, could have managed, with the single exception, of course, of the unpleasantness of the 1860s, managed to remain pretty steadfastly united all that time. After all, it's a great big entity, and not many great big entities in the world have successfully managed to be united. I mean, Canada, wonderful country, I love it dearly. But there is this great francophone, grumpy chunk of people in the middle who are forever threatening to divide the country into, into three. It may never happen, but the potential for disunity is, is, is very strong. Uh, Russia, well, you've only got to see what happened to that after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's sort of dissolved into all sorts of, once again, rather grumpy countries warring with each other or arguing with each other. Europe, where I come from, I mean, they've done their very best in the last 50 or 60 years to unite Europe, but it hasn't worked terribly well. Here are we, the British, not in the same financial arrangement. We don't use the euro. Switzerland's not a member. If you try and plug your electric razor in in Stockholm, you'll need a different plug from the one you use in Madrid, and they're all jabbering away at each other in different languages. So that's not really worked. But the United States, despite having people from all over the world, every color, every race, every ethnic background, every religion imaginable, every viewpoint, everyone happily says... I am an American. And how, how did that happen? Well, it's, it's, it's clearly very easy if you're in a country where everyone's more or less the same. If you're all Norwegians, for instance, the achieving unity is relatively simple. Japan, where my wife comes from, there's sort of very little question that the country is one. But America, much more difficult. And so I thought, well, there are abstract ideas that knit the country together, a common language, generally speaking, a, belief in human rights and democracy and all that sort of good stuff. But I thought it went slightly deeper than that, and I thought that I'd start looking at the men who had created the physical links that bound the country, the connective tissue that linked it together. And so I, I sat down one day preparing a list of these individuals that I thought, some of them very famous, uh, but a lot of them, as I was doing research, 
forgotten, have just disappeared. And I love writing about people that have vanished in the mists of time and sort of reviving their reputations. And I, I, my wife came in one day and said, what are you doing? And I explained. And she said, oh, you're writing a book about the men who united the states. And I said, sweetheart, that's, the, that's wonderful because that is the title. And I frantically looked it up. I went to Amazon and ABE Books and Alibris and lots of university library catalogues. And sure enough, no one had ever used that title. So I thought, that's terrific. Put the title down. And of course, once you've got a title, it sort of concentrates your mind on the, the, on the idea. And uh, I'm now pretty tightly focused. This list meant something. I've done on a couple of occasions... Uh, taught creative non-fiction writing. I did it once at the University of Chicago and then on one of the campuses of the University of California. And I sort of came to believe that when you're writing uh, non-fiction, there are three important things. Uh, the first thing the, is the idea. The, the idea is king. You've got to have a great idea. It's also useful if the writing's nice and elegant and all the rest of it, but it's not, it's not the second most important thing. The second most important thing I've always maintained is the structure of the book. You can have a wonderful idea and you can write about it lyrically. But if the structure's not right, people will get bored very, very quickly. You'll put them to sleep. A book has to have a, a fine sort of narrative structure. And I wasn't quite sure at first how I would organize. I've got the title, I've got the idea, I've got the participants in the story, but how to organize them. Well, you could put them all in alphabetical order, but, I mean, that would just be like a, an encyclopedia. That wouldn't be readable at all. You could organise them chronologically, which has some sort of narrative structure and logic to it, but I just felt that that would also look a bit like a catalogue, and I didn't want this book to be a catalogue. And then one day I was writing to a friend of mine in Shanghai, and I'd lived, as I mentioned, a long time in China, and I remembered or what we were actually writing about was this... Um, tradition of the classical elements that underpins so many of the philosophical systems of all the countries, nearly all the countries anyway, from India eastward. Sometimes it's five elements, sometimes it's four. And what those elements are varies slightly from, from society to society. But in China, there are essentially five classical elements, and they're always the same things. They are water, earth, wood, metal, and fire. And I thought it would be possible to arrange all these people in the list and slot them into these various categories. And somehow also, those five categories would be in an approximate chronological order as well. So I tried to, to do that. I, I made, put a sheet of paper, one saying wood, one saying earth, one saying water, one saying fire, one saying metal. And I started putting the figures into them to see if they worked. And to give you an example, uh, Lewis and Clark, who I think of as the first people to delineate the, the, the size, the scale, the scope of the nation. They were sent out in or the, the initial orders, 1803, 1804, by Jefferson. Jefferson, as anyone who's been to Monticello will well know, was a man obsessed by trees. You've only got to go to the, the garden overlooking the, from the West Terrace, overlooking the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it's full of catalpas and ginkgos and oaks that he planted himself. He loved trees. He wrote lyrically about them. He regarded them as his pets. And so here we have a man obsessed by trees, 
sending out, first of all, I'm sure you know how it happened, you must know it from school days, that he was sitting there on the terrace reading a book by a man called Alexander Mackenzie, a rather dour Scotsman, who was writing his account of having crossed Canada from essentially Edmonton to what is now Bella Coola in British Columbia and chiseled his name onto a rock in the Pacific Ocean. And his account was published in London. A copy was sent over to Jefferson at Monticello. He was sitting next to his secretary, Meriwether Lewis, read it and was apparently apoplectic with rage that a Canadian, a, a, a Scotsman to boot, was the first person to cross the North American con- con- uh, continent. And he said essentially to Lewis, this cannot stand, we've got to send an expedition out properly to understand what North America is made of. So, Lewis, off you go and assemble yourself a team, the Corps of Discovery, and go over to to the Pacific Ocean. And to do that, uh, Lewis and then Clark, when they eventually met a few months later, had to cross, first of all, the Blue Ridge Mountains, which had never... I mean, Jefferson, despite being well-travelled and, of course, having gone to Paris, never went over the Blue Ridge, never went west of Skyline Drive... So Lewis had to, with his team, had to go over and up to St. Charles, Missouri, where the expedition really began, hundreds of miles of near virgin primitive American forest. They largely went in wooden canoes. They built palisades of wood. They burnt logs of wood to keep them warm. Wood was an important feature of early, the very earliest of American exploration. So I thought the early explorers I could put under the general rather loose rubric of, of wood. And then earth, well, I used to be a geologist and it seemed reasonable to me that once you've delineated the extent of a new country, and so as Lewis and Clark did, then what you need to know, what you must know, is what it's made of. And the people that can determine what it's made of are geologists. I'd written a book in the, I think, the beginning of 2001 uh, called The Map That Changed the World about the earliest geological map anywhere, which was published in London in 1815 by a man called William Smith. Um, I thought that was the first in the world. It turns out, doing the research for this, and to my considerable chagrin, that it was not, that the first map of anywhere was actually made in this country um, by a Scotsman called William McClure, who in 1809, six years beforehand, drew an absolutely beautiful, completely inaccurate, but absolutely beautiful map of the Appalachians. It's a a joy to behold. It's a quite extraordinary map. So my publishers in in London, ever eager to to make a buck, uh, thought they would reissue uh, the map that changed the world by calling it the second map that changed the world and would hope that people would be foolish enough to buy it again. Um, I don't actually think that's going to happen. Anyway, so I wrote about McClure, and, and he did all his studying in this remarkable place called New Harmony, Indiana, which is sort of the, one of the birthplaces of early American geology, so there was a lot to write about that. And then um, the early geologists who discovered things out west, whether it's farmland or, or diamonds or coal or gold, of course, in Sutter's Mill in 1849, that the news of what they had discovered lured out the pioneers, and so the people that went on the, the Mormon Trail and the Santa Fe Trail, and of course the most famous of them all, the Oregon Trail, were lured essentially by, by the early geologists who told them what was there and what riches lay out in the West. And then in the 1860s, when you would have thought that Lincoln would have other things on his mind, he actually commissioned four 
enormous surveys um, of this country, which I'll talk a little about in a few moments, because one of the characters involved is, to my mind, fascinating. So that second chapter worked quite well under the rubric of Earth. So I've got two of the elements down, and then the third, well, that's water, and um, the settlers on the east coast of the United States, how did they first travel into the interior? Generally speaking, they went up the rivers. They went up the James and the Rappahannock and the Susquehanna and the the Potomac and the Hudson, of course, and they came after variety, you know, 50 or 60 miles or less to a set of waterfalls where, and rapids where the fall line, where the Appalachians abut against the, the coastal plains, and they couldn't go any further, so they built settlements which turned into the present-day cities of Richmond and Fredericksburg and Washington, D.C. And, and Albany and New York. And then they, to trade with people upstream and over the hills, they had to get round these rapids, and so they built the first very primitive canals, and they learned how to build canals, and then they really started realising that canals were an ideal form of transportation for heavy goods in particular, and they built the big canals of the east, initially the Middlesex Canal in eastern Massachusetts and New Hampshire, which essentially led to Boston being the big mercantile city it is today, and the most important, I suppose, of the big American early canals, the Erie Canal. Something we learned, I mean, I remember in school when I was 11, my geography master, Harold Mann, I'll never forget him, saying, um, boys, um, I want uh, 2,000 words on the significance of the Hudson-Mohawk Gap. And I don't think any American child today, if you asked him that question, would have the foggiest, <laughs> foggiest idea of what you're talking about. But we in Britain knew a great deal, or thought we knew a great deal about the Erie Canal and the Hudson-Mohawk Gap, and, of course, the canal that gave mercantile life to the new city of New York. And then there was the, the great canals that linked Chicago and the Great Lakes with the Mississippi River. The Illinois and Michigan was the first, and then this horribly named Chicago Sanitary Canal, which was indeed initially designed so that all of Chicago's human waste did not pour into the, the lake, which was most unpleasant on hot days of summer, but in fact, they breached a low hill about 200 feet high, built this canal and shipped everything to the west where they didn't really much care about the people over there. <laughs> if they got Chicago's west, so be it. But they could then drive dirty great ships down through the canal and ultimately into the Mississippi and down to, down to New Orleans. And then, of course, the story of the taming, if it can ever be tamed, of the, of the Mississippi and the canalization of that river. That all goes under the rubric of water. But tra- travelling along in a canal is necessarily a very slow business and by the time we've got to the 1850s and 1860s American commercial life was picking up in a big way and people needed to move rapidly and this coincided happily with uh, James Watt's invention of the steam engine and so suddenly engines some powered by steam but all powered essentially by heat by fire uh, began to rumble across the American landscape and so that was the railway train and then the motor car, and then the construction of the interstate highway system, and then the invention of the aeroplane and the first transcontinental aeroplane journey in 1911. All of that neatly put into the, into the chapter, or the part of the book, under the rubric of fire. And then finally, the fifth, and the fifth classical element, was metal. And that, of course, was the metal of the telegraph wire, the metal along which electricity was distributed to people, and then the radio, or the telephone, television, and of course nowadays the internet. 
And as you can see, that everything from Lewis and Clark to the internet, with the canals, with the geologists, the canals, the fire-breathing engines, and the telegraph, also happily manages to be chronologically, they sort of overlap, but it sort of works. So I put it to my editor that this seemed a, a reasonable way of organizing the book. And he at first was, it has to be said, a, a little reluctant because would Americans relish their country being looked at through the prism of Chinese classical philosophy? And he said, you know, you might get a bit of stick from the critics and people might not buy the book. So the book came out last Tuesday, which is, what, uh, eight days ago. And the reviews thus far have been gratifying, to say the least. I mean, the Wall Street Journal was lovely on last Tuesday. And um, with the news that the book has now got into this, the Holy of Holies, the New York Times list, although at number 13, so you know, that may not be the best of luck, it sort of seems to vindicate the idea, and although I don't want it to sound that I'm being too glib about this, but it's, it seems it's beginning to seem that I might have gotten away with it. In other words, that the, that the structure works and, and people are not too hostile. But the New York Times review itself, I know, is scheduled for the, for the 10th of uh, November, so we'll see what they have to say about it. So anyway, once having decided on the structure, I then wrote the book, and, and now the rest is history. And it turned into a big sort of plum pudding of a book with lots of extraordinary creatures and places. And I thought what I'd do in the, the minutes remaining to me is just from within it, pluck three or four or two or three, depending on how much time we've got, ideas and places and people that I had never heard of when I embarked on the book and tell you about them. But first, I want to conduct a, a little poll because um, I've asked the same question now of, I think, eight or nine audiences beginning uh, about 10 days ago with the Athenaeum in Boston, you know, very learned, pointy-headed people, and um, asking you... I'll ask you in a minute about a person, but first of all about a place, to ask you whether you've heard of the town of East Liverpool, Ohio. There's one person. Anybody else? Two people, three people. Well, which is part of the course. You're actually, the audience in, in Boston was a little larger. Three people there as well. So you're above the average. This is great. Yay, Baltimore. And um, East Liverpool, in my view, is in the story of the building of this country is hugely, hugely important, but forgotten, and, and I'm trying, trying to make the case that it shouldn't be forgotten. Um, its importance, it's a little town on the west bank of the Ohio River, um, at a point where Pennsylvania, Ohio, and that little sliver of um, West Virginia all meet. It's a sad little place. It used to be, you've probably all got something in your homes that was made in East Liverpool, because for a long time it was the crockery capital of the country and so probably you have saucers and cups and plates and teapots and coffee pots and things that were made in there were used to be 400 kilns in East Liverpool well now there are only two I mean if porcelain rusted you would say this was a classical rust belt city because it's just devastated old factories that no longer have any work and hugely high unemployment but the importance of East Liverpool is nothing at all to do with its industrial history or the ceramics it produced. It's to do with an obelisk that you see on the road when you drive from East Liverpool eastwards to the bridge across the Ohio, which leads you into Pennsylvania. There is on the right-hand side of Route 39 an obelisk, a little bit taller than I am, which is covered with litter. There's often graffiti on it. It's totally disregarded by people who just speed past. Most of the people that I met in East Liverpool have never 
understood what it is. But it is a very, very important monument. And it all stems from a piece of legislation that was passed, rammed through Congress by Thomas Jefferson in 1785, called the Land Ordinance. The Land Ordinance allowed for the first time citizens of this new-made country to own land. Up to that point, the European tradition was that land was owned by the king, the monarch, the church, the aristocracy. But the ordinary people, they were merely tenants on the landscape. And Jefferson thought this was entirely wrong. He said the model should be changed. In this new country, people ought to be able to own land. Because if they owned it, they would take pride in ownership, they would farm things on it, they would build on it, they would develop it, they could sell it, and the government could levy taxes on it more to the point, to raise the revenue to administer the country. So everybody won under this arrangement. And so the law came into effect and America started selling land to the settlers for nominal sums of money. There were uh, sales offices set up in New York and various other cities to sell acreages for tiny sums of money. But to sell land, you have to survey it. You have to lay it out. You have to lay it out in plots. And you will, every time you cross the country by air, you will look down, I'm sure, when you're bored and you're passing over Nebraska or Kansas or Nevada, and you'll see the straight lines north and south, and you know they're exactly a mile apart, so if you count the speed with which they pass under your wings, you can find out how fast the aeroplane is travelling. And there are similarly east-west lines also a mile apart, and you've got these great chunks of land sections and ranges and townships, all now we know delineated, you know, 40 acres and a mule and all those kinds of things. Well, they are all based on a system of surveying which was established by a man called Thomas Hutchins in 1785 as a result of this land ordinance. And they had their point of origin at the place where the first north-south line was drawn and the first east-west baseline. So you've got a meridian and you've got a baseline. And the point where those two intersect, chosen by Thomas Hutchins, was in East Liverpool, Ohio. And that obelisk by the side of the road is known as the point of beginning. It's the point where the unsettled lands of the American West were measured from. And my view is that this overlooked, disregarded, litter-covered monument is hugely important. And it should, there should be a parking lot for buses and there should be an interpretive center air-conditioned with a slideshow and all the rest of it and I think every child in America certainly in the east should be taken there and shown this is where your country began so if this book does any good at all because I'm going to repeat this message when I get to Ohio (laughs) shake their little heads and say build a monument there because Jefferson did it for you 200 and odd years ago and you should respect this great and extraordinarily wise man the second thing another person well, three of you have heard of, 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 of the point of beginning, at least. Uh, your knowledge of, of East Liverpool is of the point of beginning, right? Or is it? Right. The, um, I wanted to mention these four surveys, the great surveys of this country, which were done by geologists, two of them civilians, two of them soldiers, in the 17, or starting in the late 17, uh, 1860s. Um, the names of the four, one of, you will certain, one of them will certainly be known to you, the others less so. The most boring of the four is a, a man called Wheeler who surveyed a lot of the Dakotas and Nebraska and sort of has faded somewhat away in the public memory. Um, there's Hayden. Hayden's an important chap. And he mapped and took um, 
notes about the geology of Yellowstone. Because Yellowstone was very much hidden away. It wasn't found for a long time. Then there's John Wesley Powell, the chap who I think you all will have heard of, who, despite only having one arm, most of his right arm was shot off at the Battle of Shiloh, managed to get down the Colorado River and through the Grand Canyon. So he was essentially the person who discovered and mapped and surveyed the Grand Canyon. And parenthetically, I, I should say that uh, the Hayden uh, and, uh, and Powell would be spinning in their graves, I think, today to think that the parks that they essentially discovered, Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon, had to be shut because of this essentially rather trivial dispute in, in the nation's capital recently. They would be horrified by what had happened. But it's actually the fourth one I want to talk about, and he's a fellow... Many, some of you may know about him, but I, I knew very little about him, despite being relatively familiar with old geologists. And he's called Clarence King. Now, Clarence King was an extraordinary man. He was from Newport in Rhode Island. He came from a very aristocratic WASP family. He was friends with Henry Adams. He was friends with John Hay. He went to Yale, and I think PhD at, um, at Harvard, and as a geologist. And um, he was only 27 when he was selected to uh, lead what's called the 40th Parallel Survey, which is a, the survey of a long stretch of land from Sacramento in the west to Cheyenne in the east, about 1,000 miles or more long, and 100 miles north and south of that line. Well, it took him seven years um, and with a party of, of, of fellow geologists. And the reports from it and the maps that they designed and published you can buy them now for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, they're works of art. A beautiful, beautiful piece of work. The, the, the 40th Parallel Survey was regarded as a great success. The greatest, I think, of the four uh, great surveys. Well, as a, as a reward, a recognition for having done this, uh, Clarence King was made the first ever director of the United States Geological Survey, a body which, of course, still exists today. Powell was the second director, but Clarence King was the first so this was the, the triumph of his career. He was universally respected, a wonderful guy. But there's this other aspect of him which is little known, but renders him, in my view, a very interesting human being. He, he was a very sort of sexually energetic man. He loved women, but he did not like, had no time at all for white women. He thought they were boring, and I mean in a, in a romantic sense. Um, however, he loved Native American women and he loved black women. And there came this celebrated, memorable moment when, and he was well on in years when this happened, he was walking through Riverside Park in New York and he saw coming towards him a black lady who, it was a real coup de foudre. He, this is the woman of my dreams, he said to himself. And what he should have done, I think in retrospect, is to have gone up to her and said, uh, good evening, madam. My name is Clarence King. I'm director of the United States Geological Survey. Could I possibly take you to dinner? But he didn't. He said something far more complicated. Thinking very fast on his feet, and I think a little too fast, as you'll agree, he said, good evening, madam. My name is James Todd. And although I, goodness knows where he got that name from, goodness, uh, although I may look white, I am actually black, and I'm a porter on the Pullman railway system, which, as you know, was a job reserved for black people. Will you have dinner with me? 
And she, her name was Ada Copeland, she came from Chattahoochee in Georgia, from a former slave family, said yes. And they went to dinner, and to cut a relatively long story short, they fell in love, they married, they had five children, two of whom, unaccountably, were as white as the driven snow. He then lived two entirely separate lives for the remaining 20 years of his life. He never told the one about the other. She, Mrs. Todd, and Ada Todd, and Mr. James Todd, and the five children lived a life of blameless domesticity in Queens, in New York. And he would say to her every so often, well, my dear, it's um, Tuesday, I've got to catch the 20th Century Limited or the California Zephyr. I'll be back in two weeks, um, have a nice time. And he walked across the newly built Brooklyn Bridge to the offices of the Geological Survey and said, well, that was quite a field trip I've been on. I'll be here for a couple of weeks writing up my notes. Very good, Professor King. Down you sit. So he sat down, did his notes, and two weeks later would say, well, got to go off on another expedition. And he walked back across the Brooklyn Bridge, became James Todd again, went and saw Mrs. Todd, gave her the tips that he had apparently got on the train journey. And this went on for 20 years with the one side never knowing about the other. This caused him immense uh, financial strain, as you you can probably imagine. He had to borrow heaps of money from John Hay, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he also was very afflicted mentally by the strain. There was one celebrated and really rather sad moment when he went sort of berserk outside the lion cage of the uh, Central Park Zoo and, I think, bit somebody and uh, had to be restrained and taken away to a a lunatic asylum for a a couple of weeks. But... uh, Anyway, after 20 years of this, when the children were now all getting on themselves, he uh, fell ill with tuberculosis and he was taken off to Albuquerque in New Mexico to recuperate. But he didn't recuperate. He sank more and more. And um, he then said to his doctor, he said, I think perhaps now is the moment to actually write a letter to uh, Mrs. Todd in Queens and tell her that her name is actually Ada King and that her husband was not even a tiny bit black, but he was white, and uh, very sorry for the confusion he'd caused her. Uh, And then he died. uh, But the doctor, and this rather plays into the idea of the book, entirely unwittingly, I mean, I didn't know this, in making out the death certificate, he has to fill in race of deceased. And he decided he was a nice and kindly man, apparently. He scratched out the words black and white as being irrelevant and wrote in handwriting instead single word, American. So that's the story of Clarence King. Another, I want to tell you two other little things. One was about, I'm fascinated with the distribution of electricity to this country, which also seems a tremendously unifying aspect of of modern life. I'm sure you all know the basic story of electricity, that it was invented, you know, DC electricity, by Edison, who later went on to found General Electric, the company we all love so much which doesn't seem to pay its taxes, but never mind. Um, He set up a power station in Pearl Street in Lower Manhattan, distributed DC power, which, as you may know, the further from the power station, the weaker the power, and so light bulbs glow sort of um, dimly and then go out. Then this remarkable, once again, half-forgotten man called Nikola Tesla, Serbian, came up with the idea of AC, alternating current. Westinghouse brought the 
patent, and then these two giants, Edison and Westinghouse, for many years fought the battle of the currents, which current was going to dominate America. Uh, and you may know, those of you that have access to YouTube, if you are of macabre mind, may want to go and see this extraordinary little film clip when Edison, doing his level best to malign AC electricity as being a very dangerous kind of current and you shouldn't use it, uh, decided that he would um, electrocute an elephant, showing how dangerous it was. And there's this film of Topsy, who is an elephant at Coney Island, who, um, who had uh, trampled on one of her keepers, not entirely surprisingly, because the keeper had fed her a number of lighted cigarettes, which would make most people quite angry, I would have thought. Um, and they decided, or at least Edison decided, to kill her, and to kill her with AC electricity. And so they made these little, well, not very little, actually, rather large copper boots, and which they fitted onto her legs. And then they, just in case it didn't work, they fed her a lunch of carrots soaked in cyanide, and then led her over to an iron plate and pulled the lever. And there is a film of it, um, which is really quite extraordinary. You see Topsy's legs beginning to smoke, and then three tons of elephant falls over with a gigantic crash. But the American public didn't buy this idea that AC was dangerous, despite its obvious dangers to <coughs> recalcitrant elephants, and um, AC eventually won the day. Early electricity was invariably generated solely for the cities of this country, however, and the farms got short shrift, largely because of an Englishman called Samuel Insull, who owned most of the electrical generation companies particularly in the Midwest. And he said, you know, Chicago and Des Moines, they can all have electricity, but the farms, and there were 800,000 of those in America in the early 1930s, it was simply not economical to let them have electricity. And yet the farms had to work really hard in those days because the population was increasing so rapidly, people needed food and you know, beef and corn and wheat and stuff. And so it was a miserable, wretched life. And one of the many in my view, very good things that FDR did when he came to office was to set up the REA, the Rural Electrification Administration, whose task was to bring electricity uh, to, to the farms. And, and the stories, which I assembled one or two of them in the book, of the night the lights came on, I mean, they're just touching, wonderfully effective stories, usually came on in the evening, and people who had never known electricity suddenly pulled a chain or flicked a switch and it was no longer oil and kerosene and all those things. They just had electricity whenever they wanted. And what I think is one of the wonderful ironies of this story is that the first place in America to get, the first farm in America to get uh, electricity, thanks to the REA, which when you think about it is one of the biggest government agencies around, was in western Ohio. It was a place called Miami, Ohio. And they got it in, I think, November 1935. And the thing about it is that Miami, Ohio, is right in the middle of the 8th Congressional District of Ohio, which is the constituency now represented in today's Congress by John Boehner. So John Boehner, the archetype foe of big government, presides over a territory which benefited mightily from the biggest big government this country has really ever known. The final thing I want to mention is one, maybe this is sentimental, maybe it's cultural unification, I don't know, but I, it's dear to my heart, and that's the way that radio knits this country together. There's an image which I think is an abiding one of 
the family in the 1930s and 1940s in the living room gathered round the walnut-panelled radio set, mother, father, children, dogs, cats, all listening to a programme from that radio set beamed in from maybe it's the NBC Symphony Orchestra in under Toscanini in New York, maybe it's a comedy programme from Los Angeles, maybe it's some drama beamed in from Oregon. It's an image both of national unification and of familial unification. But it required radio to be able to transmit the human voice. And that came about in 1906. Radio, you will know, really at least long-distance radio, began in 1902, thanks to Marconi and the image of him, which I think is so romantic and abiding, is of him sitting on Signal Hill in Newfoundland in a raging storm, 2,000 miles away in a place called Poldew in Cornwall. His assistants were tapping out endlessly, 24 hours a day, the letter S on the Morse transmitter. And there's Marconi sitting with an aerial on a kite 400 feet above him in this torrential rainstorm, listening patiently hour after hour. And then about 2 o'clock in the morning, a December day in 1902, very faintly above the static, he hears, and he knows that radio works. Transoceanic radio transmissions are a reality. But, all fine and dandy that may be, it's not possible to conduct a national conversation in Morse code. Morse is wonderful, but it's, it's for financial information or navigation instructions or whatever. So it took off as essentially, initially, for the guidance of ships at sea. Enter into the picture a man long forgotten uh, called Reginald Aubrey Fessenden, big, bluff, bearded Canadian who was working for the National Weather Bureau here in America, fascinated in his own personal time in coming up with a, a means of transmitting the human voice by radio, not simply Morse code. And he worked long and hard in his laboratory. And this is what I'm going to play you if this all works properly. Um, yes. He developed what you will be familiar with, AM and FM, amplitude modulation, frequency modulation, which basically allowed, instead of a Morse code transmitter, the tapper to be tied onto a radio set, it allowed a microphone like this. And anything that the microphone picked up would be transmitted across the air. So he set up two aerials, one great big one, a place called Brant Rock, Massachusetts, just near Plymouth Rock, and another big one in a place called Macrahanish in Argyll in Scotland, and did te test transmissions, and they worked. So he was convinced that this, this could function. So in the middle of December 1906, he sent out, by Morse code, messages to all the ships at sea that belonged to the United Fruit Company and that were bringing bananas up from Central American ports like Tegucigalpa in Honduras, and were bringing them up to places like Baltimore and Boston and New York and Savannah and Charleston, saying, listen out for a special transmission at one minute to midnight on Christmas Eve 1906. Well, as luck would have it, it actually was a dark and stormy night, Christmas Eve. It really was. I looked at the weather um, records for it. There was a vicious snowstorm off Cape Cod, and these vessels were lumbering through the the ocean, towards the ports. But as instructed, the men of the radio operators went to their radio shacks and put on their earphones and tuned in the transmission, the station that they'd been told to listen for. And they heard Morse code chatter between other ships. 
and they heard the static and then suddenly they heard the hum of a transmitter come on and instead of hearing Morse, they heard this. was Emmy Leisner singing Ombra Mai Fu from Handel's Xerxes, something nothing at all to do with America. It's all about a Persian king and lying under a shade tree. But that was the first non-Morse ever transmitted to other human beings. It was followed by Fessenden himself getting on the radio and reading to these astonished mariners the Lord's Prayer and then wishing them all a happy Christmas. And then within a few days, a radio station opened up above a musical instrument store in Pasadena, a store which is still in existence today. Then an aerial was built in a cornfield in Madison, Wisconsin, and WHA, which still exists, an NPR station in Madison, Wisconsin, began transmission. And with that, with the singing of this beautiful aria, however crackly and indistinct it may have been, so the national unifying radio conversation got underway. So I'll leave it at that and uh, look forward to some questions if you have any. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Has anybody... Sir? Yes. Okay. Very fascinating. um, What do you think of the uh, unification of the country crews space travel. Some of us grew up watching Apollo 11, then on the moon, it was, yeah, got us going, you know, Apollo 9 and so forth. Uh, what do you think? I actually don't write about it in the book, except in a broader context that the use of broadcasting radio and television, and I address this principally in the que- trying to ask the question of whether NPR is a unifying organization or not, and saying that we gather round the radio and the television when there is a great national event, like the landing on the moon in 1969, like the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963, like, of course, the World Trade Center catastrophe in 2001. So I do think these events are very good at temporarily annealing people, but purely temporary. I don't see any lasting, except a swelling of pride that America was the first person to land anyone on the moon. And that, but that falls into the sort of abstract field of, of feel good. It's not the real connective tissue that I'm trying to write about, but I think it's a very good point. And I cover it elusively, but not specifically the moon, the moon shot. Ma'am. I very much enjoyed Oh, Krakatoa, thank you very much. An amazing book. Uh, you know, just doesn't seem likely to be such an exciting story and an engaging uh, nonfiction. I, I've tried to find Krakatoa on the map and failed oh. because it doesn't show up. Well, so it doesn't exist. That's why that's it blew right. itself to bits. It so. blew. And is it still blown to bit? I well, mean, it's it, still it, not There visible. was this extraordinary uh, event. I mean, Krakatoa, 1883, when this little island between Java and Sumatra 
there is this absolutely dreadful movie called Krakatoa, East of Java. Um, I mean, it's wonderful to watch as an example. It's like, you know, William McGonagall's poetry. You read it only because it's the worst poetry in the world. This is also one of the worst films ever made. And the New York Times review of it said, Krakatoa, East of Java, is one of the worst films we've ever seen. And its badness begins in its title because, in fact, Krakatoa is west of Java. (laughs) But but the director thought it would be more exotic if he shifted it to the east of Java. Yeah. So um, uh, it the island, there was this titanic explosion and the island of Krakatoa evaporated essentially. But then in 1933, some fishermen were paddling around in the waters where it had been. And suddenly, and you can imagine it would be a very bewildering thing to see, suddenly the sea caught fire and smoke started coming out of it and flames And when it subsided, there was a small um, sort of scintilla of earth above the surface of the waves. And it was washed away after a few hours. But then it came again and got bigger, washed away. And then it established itself as a new island, which is called Anak Krakatoa, meaning the child of Krakatoa. And that ever since has been growing at the rate of about 50 feet a year and is now nearly 2,000 feet high. So it's a very substantial Uh, mountain and it it erupts frequently it's very dangerous to go to but it's populated I mean people were fascinated to see what the first you know when you've got a completely virgin piece of real estate what is the first creature uh, to be on it and in the the biologists that went and had a look at it the first thing they ever found was a spider presumably waiting for a fly so it (laughs) it was a sort of an illustration of biological optimism And then came birds, and then came, well, now you've got monitor lizards, and you've got lots of pine trees and things like that. So it's a a fully functioning island, but a very dangerous place. But the thing to do on your atlas is not to look up something beginning with K, but something beginning with A, Anak. Exactly the same. Exactly the same place. The epicenter, I mean, if you were to draw crosshairs over the crater, that would have been the exact center of the old eruption. Sir. Certainly a cumulative unity. Do you have either a favorite or one that is more preeminent than another? A favorite unity in America? Yes, huh? An event. An, An event. event. Well, I, gosh, there are so many. The one I particularly like uh, relates to the building of the biggest construction project in the history of the planet, which is the interstate system. You know, we take it for granted now, but the 46,000 miles of road, the, the immensity of it as a piece of engineering, the cost of it, it hasn't been equaled. And it's the Eisenhower system, of course, and most people think it's the Eisenhower system because he saw the German autobahns, admittedly, in their infancy when he was in Europe at the end of World War II. But in fact, it turns out that he got the idea at the end of World War I when the National War College had this idea, and very prescient idea, that the Japanese, who after all had defeated Russia in 1905 and the treaty of bringing about peace was brokered here in America, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, that they were getting restless and might one day look hungrily at the west coast of America. How quickly could troops be sent from the bases in the eastern part of the United States to deal with an invasion of the west by the Japanese. They actually called them an Asiatic enemy, but I think everyone knew what they were talking about. So they decided to establish a convoy three miles long of every imaginable vehicle, 
type in the U.S. Army of the day. So primitive tanks and armored cars and commissary vehicles and hospital vehicles and jeeps and such things. And they set off, and there's a marker on the south lawn of the White House to this day, um, heading west to get to California as fast as they could with the young Major Eisenhower, who had acquitted himself very well in World War I and was beginning to be noticed as official observer of the expedition. And he kept a diary, which I got from the Presidential Library in Kansas. And it's a fascinating journey. It was a complete disaster. They took 58 days to get to California at the average speed of just under six miles an hour, meaning that had the Japanese invaded, they would have taken California, Arizona, New Mexico, and probably, and probably not a bad thing, quite a chunk of Texas as well. Um, no, I, I should not say that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, and Eisenhower kept this, this wonderful diary, and so I got my car and put in a rucksack and a sleeping bag and a tent and went off to go to all of those the night stops I took rather less time I took about 20 days but I went to all the towns they went to including a town I'd always wanted to go to all my life and that's the little town of Denison in western Iowa where they stopped on a Sunday and the convoy played baseball with the town of Denison losing I think very badly soldiers obviously not in very good shape the soldiers also went to an evening of movies in the Denison Opera House. But the reason I went, wanted to go there, and I took this chance because I had, for researching this book, a good reason to go there, was because Denison is the birthplace of the woman that I always considered the most beautiful woman in the world when I was a teenager. She was born Donna Mullinger. She wanted to become a teacher, but they had no money. So she got on the Union Pacific train in Omaha and went to Hollywood where she was signed by MGM as Donna Adams, but no one could, it wasn't easy to say Donna Adams. And so they changed her name to Donna Reed. And I had seen as a 15-year-old, It's a Wonderful Life, and I thought Mrs. George Bailey was just the greatest and most beautiful, quintessentially American woman that I'd ever seen. So I wanted to go to the shrine to Donna Reed. And the, the opera house where the troops had been entertained is now the Donna Reed Performing Arts Centre, her Oscar is there, which she won not for that film, but for From Here to Eternity. And, um, and the drugstore was imported from Fat Moe's in Chicago. And you can go there and have a soda, just as that little boy did in It's a Wonderful Life. So for me, that trip across along the route of the 1919 convoy is very important. Um. Actually... I listened to part of you on the Dan Roderick show. Ah, so you've heard all this before then? No, not all of it, but I missed. You were talking about um, being out west in California. It was a terrible snowstorm and something about somebody selling you chains for $75, and then I had to leave the house. So I just don't know the story. And yeah, I would just you like to know the end of that happened. story? <laughs> uh, okay, well, oddly enough, the, the hotel that's involved, it will happen tomorrow, the... the, the, the the end of this story will be revisited again tomorrow because I'm going to go to San Francisco. What it was was that I was driving... I had bought a bit of land in Montana and I lived in Hong Kong at the time. And I had to get... I had a plane reservation on a particular day. I can't remember what it was. But I needed to get back to San Francisco in a hurry. And I had a car. So I drove from where I bought the land near Hamilton, Montana, down Route 93 
got two tickets in Idaho, both by policemen driving the other way using Doppler radar to get me. I thought it was very sneaky. And then got down onto Route 80, turned right, went through Winnemucca, went through Reno. And it was now about 10 o'clock at night, I think. And I'd been going since about noon. And I wanted to do it in one long go. And um, the radio said, Donna Pass is free and clear. So I, great optimism. I sped on. But it started to rain about maybe 30 miles or less, 10 miles outside Reno. And as I went up the, the slope of the, of the Sierra, uh, it turned to sleet and then to snow. And then there was a roadblock across the road, highway patrol, saying you can only go ahead if you have chains. And of course, there are, as always, there are some helpful gentlemen by the road, $75, we give you chains, si senor. So I put them on and... Uh, so I bolted on the chains, handed over the cash. The highway patrol let me through, and it got progressively more vicious. I mean, it was just the most horrible, with this horizontal snow coming in your face and great walls of white on either side of you. No other traffic except very occasionally a truck, 18-wheeler, just complete disregard for everything. Obviously, the driver was riders of the purple sage and smoking something weird and just... <laughs> and that was pretty frightening in and of itself. But the reason I included it in the book is that when I'm near the summit and it's snowing like you wouldn't believe, there's a train, a Union Pacific train going past on my right-hand side, completely imperturbable, just channeling its way through the snow, shoveling the snow over its shoulder and just heading for Oakland and California with complete disregard for the weather. So then I got to the top and started going down the other side and the snow turned slowly to sleet and then it turned to rain and the sun was just becoming up behind me when at about, I suppose, five in the morning, I was dog tired by this time as I'd been driving since midday the day before, I stopped by the road and I undid the chains and put them in the, the trunk of the car and drove on over the Bay Bridge, through Sacramento, over the Bay Bridge into San Francisco. And I always stay at the same hotel, which is the Mandarin, because it's owned by Hong Kong friends of mine. So I turned up at the Mandarin, and of course the doorman, it's now about nine o'clock in the morning, and he's just begun his shift, and, oh, Mr. Winchester, nice to see you again. Of course, I'm feeling absolutely dog-tired, and he opens the trunk, and in it is my rucksack or something, and these chains. And he said, will you be needing the chains? And I said, I don't think so. So he said, I'll, I'll leave them with the concierge. And he puts a label on them. And every single time that I have stayed in the Mandarin, which includes tomorrow, I have no doubt, I will get up to my room, and they're laid out on my bed. <laughs> From 15 years ago will be this pair of chains. They clearly think I get up to something very private and very <laughs> unusual in my bedroom. So that, that was what you missed. <laughs> I think we'll uh, end it there so we have time for buying books and selling and signing books. So let's um, say thank you to Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.